Hey, a quick favor. We are conducting an audience survey. We'd be really grateful if you could just take a few minutes and answer our survey. Please visit survey.prx.org slash scene to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org slash scene. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's John. So for the last of our summer mini-season of rebroadcasts featuring a few of my favorite things from the catalog, I knew I wanted to post an episode from season four, The Land That Never Has Been Yet. I confess to being pretty dang proud of that 2020 season. It's about democracy or not so much in the United States, past and present. It was nominated for a Peabody Award, just saying. The question was which episode to share here. I was tempted to post episode one of the series, Rich Man's Revolt, sets the stage, frames the whole thing, and explores what the American Revolution was really about. Spoiler alert, not democracy. If you haven't listened to that episode or any of the series, please do and sure start with episode one. But I decided on episode two because the Constitution. Ah, the U.S. Constitution. It just keeps showing up in the news especially given the radical right-wing capture of the U.S. Supreme Court. The court's main job, of course, is to decide, do we let this law stand in the face of a challenge because, in our learned opinion, the law comports with the letter and spirit of the Constitution, or do we strike it down because it does not? So, in 1973 and again in 1992, the court found pregnant people have a right to abortion, thanks to a right to privacy that the justices found in the 14th Amendment. The 2022 court said, nope, the Constitution doesn't say that. States can ban abortion if they want to. Other blockbuster rulings this year involved guns. The court majority said the Second Amendment guarantees the right to carry a firearm for protection even outside the home. Separation of church and state. Among other things, the court ruled a public high school football coach may hold a team prayer on the field after games, throw in a ruling undermining tribal sovereignty that would have looked right at home in the 19th century, and other decisions blocking the prerogatives of the executive branch and its agencies to issue vaccine mandates or to set rules reducing fossil fuel emissions, all based on ideologically loaded readings of the Constitution. Outside the courts, the document looms large in the wider public shouting match about U.S. history, how much reverence we should hold for the so-called Founding Fathers, and so on. And it's been the season of the January 6th Select Committee hearings, featuring frequent uses of the C-word. Article 2 of the United States Constitution establishes... In spite of a commander-in-chief who worked in opposition to what the Constitution designed. Nearly toppled the constitutional order. He refused to defend our nation and our Constitution. In one of those hearings, the Republican Speaker of the State House from Arizona, Rusty Bowers, choked up as he explained why he refused to join in Trump's coup attempt by working to overturn Biden's victory in his state. And it is a tenet of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired. This expression of faith and principle did not stop Arizona Republicans from rejecting Mr. Bowers in his state Senate primary this summer, instead choosing a guy who attacked Bowers for refusing to help Trump overthrow democracy. But yes, the Constitution. How did we get it? What was going on in the 1780s that prompted those men to create it? And what's it for, really? 
and how do the answers to those questions inform urgent matters here and now, including not only the right-wing attack on American democracy and why it could succeed, but also the question of why our democracy itself is so frustratingly hobbled. You know, a hobble is a strap or a rope that a person puts on an animal, say a horse or a donkey, to restrain the animal's movements. Here it is, season four, episode two, The Excess of Democracy. In the fall of 1786, George Washington got a letter that, I imagine, messed up his whole day. I picture him in his study out there at Mount Vernon. Outside his French-paned windows, several hundred captive black people are toiling away on his vast farmlands. Washington is 54, but feeling older. His rheumatism is acting up. It's been three years since the Treaty of Paris ended the Revolutionary War, with the British recognizing the United States. Washington spent eight years away from home leading the Continental Army, so he's written that he wants to live quietly from now on, under the shadow of my own vine and my own fig tree. There, at his desk, he opens the letter from his friend and former military officer, Henry Knox, writing from New York. My dear sir, I have long intended myself the pleasure of visiting you at Mount Vernon, and although I have not given up that hope... Knox gets so past the pleasantries and to his point. He tells Washington about the commotions in Massachusetts, farmers protesting high taxes and showing up with guns by the hundreds to shut down county courts. This dreadful situation has alarmed every man of principle and property in New England. They start as from a dream and ask what has been the cause of our delusion. Wealthy people in New England wanted these protests to stop. But the Articles of Confederation, the nation's first federal agreement created after the Revolution, gave the national government no power to tax, make federal laws, or keep a standing army. The Articles tied together loosely what were essentially 13 independent republics. The Confederation Congress could sign treaties, print money, and declare war, but couldn't put down uprisings like the one in Massachusetts. So, Knox is telling Washington, the current arrangement just doesn't work. Our government must be braced, changed, or altered to secure our lives and property. When Washington writes back, he expresses alarm about the civil disobedience in western Massachusetts, the resistance movement led by, among other people, a farmer named Daniel Shays. Good God, who besides a Tory could have foreseen? Washington worries that if that disorder isn't resolved, it could spread. And in fact, farmers and other working people are protesting high taxes in other parts of the new nation. There are combustibles in every state which a spark may set fire to. Washington agrees with Knox that leaders of the states should meet, and soon, to construct a stronger federal government at a constitutional convention. What are the prevailing sentiments of the one now proposed to be held at Philadelphia in May next? And how will it be attended? These are real questions. Leaders of several states oppose changes to the Articles of Confederation and are refusing to go to the Constitutional Convention. Washington knows he's the most widely respected man in the country and that if he attends, he'll be asked to preside over the meetings. But he doesn't want to come out of retirement and says he doesn't plan to attend. In January 1787, Henry Knox writes again, pleading with Washington, saying the success or failure of the meetings in Philadelphia may rest on his shoulders. I am persuaded, if you were determined to attend the convention, and it should be generally known, it would induce the eastern states to send delegates to it. I should therefore be much obliged for information of your decision on this subject. Washington is already being called the father of his country. His sense of duty and concern for his reputation finally went out. Just weeks before the convention is to open, in late March, he writes to Governor Edmund Randolph, who's putting together the Virginia delegation. As my friends, with a degree of solicitude which is unusual, seem to wish my attendance on this occasion, I have come to a resolution to go if my health will permit. 
and he made it very clear, you can read his letters from the spring of 1787, he made it very clear that the reason he changed his mind was Shays' Rebellion, that that convinced him that the crisis was that great. Historian Woody Holton of the University of South Carolina. Shays' Rebellion is the name that eventually got attached to those commotions in Massachusetts. In retrospect, what follows can seem inevitable if not preordained. Washington presides over the Constitutional Convention. The men there, the framers, construct a powerful new federal government with a president and a bicameral Congress and a court system. And Washington will eventually be named the first president. The Constitution is ratified by the states in 1788, but only after a contentious nine-month debate. Woody Holton says the American people and their state governments could have rejected the new blueprint for the nation, and almost did. It was a very near thing. Uh, most historians think that roughly half, maybe a majority of Americans, opposed the Constitution, and a few things finally got enough votes to squeeze it passed. And one of the crucial things that got people to accept the Constitution was, A, George Washington has given his seal of approval, and B, if we create this powerful new national government and we're really terrified that this president is going to be a king because he's so powerful, but we don't have to worry about it because the first president's going to be Washington. So if you take him out of the equation, which you have to take him out of the equation if there's no Shays Rebellion, then I don't think the Constitution would have been adopted. I'm John Bewin from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. This is season four of Seen on Radio, and part two of our series, The Land That Never Has Been Yet. It's a fresh retelling of the story of democracy in the United States in all its glories and its deep flaws and limitations. Shay's Rebellion. If you grew up in the U.S., you may have heard about it in high school history class. And your textbook might have said that it helped move the framers to write the Constitution. But if you're like me, you couldn't say much more about it than that. What was this protest movement by Massachusetts farmers really about? And what does it tell us about the U.S. Constitution and the problems it was designed to solve? For that matter, what did the original Constitution have to say about democracy? Coming 11 years after the Declaration of Independence, was the Constitution the next big step toward a great democratic America, as we're taught to think of it? Or were the framers up to something else? Yeah, so how do you want to begin? I mean, I'm in western Massachusetts in the village of Pelham. Bruce Klotz, who's a volunteer with the Pelham Historical Association, is one of several men showing me around. So this is um, the Pelham Historic Town Hall. This is the center of Pelham. It was built, what, 1743? So this happens to be the oldest town hall in continual use in the United States. These days, the town only holds about one meeting a year in the old building in order to keep making that claim about continual use. But in 1786, the town hall was the central gathering place for the village. Daniel Shays and his large family lived on a farm nearby. The son of poor Irish immigrants Shays had fought heroically during the Revolutionary War at Lexington, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, and he rose to captain. So here in Pelham, the respected former officer sometimes led the local militia in drills outside the meeting hall. And this was one of the places where the crisis was, you know, gathered people. The other place was just down the hill from here, which was Conkey's Tavern. Dan Bullen is my main guide here. He's a writer based in Western Mass. He's getting ready to publish a book about what he prefers to call the resistance that Daniel Shays eventually came to lead. The crisis Bullen is talking about? All the states, all 13 of the states were suffering the same economic problems after the war. The new country was in a bad economic slump in the 1780s, and the states had another big problem. To pay for the Revolutionary War, the colonies and the Continental Congress had essentially borrowed money by issuing bonds. Now the bondholders, mostly well-off people, were demanding payment. To get the money to pay off the bonds, some of the new state governments chose harsh austerity, raising taxes on their citizens. At that time, most free people were farmers getting by with little to spare. 
Massachusetts, under Governor James Bowdoin, raised farmers' taxes drastically, up to four or five times the tax rates under British rule. In some other states, the people protested high taxes and the legislatures responded or got voted out. All the other states made compromises, or in Rhode Island they voted in you know, the Farmers' Party and they issued reforms, they issued paper money, they let the debts depreciate. That is, Rhode Island made it easier for farmers to pay, and the bondholders just wouldn't get the full face value of their bonds. They let people off the hook, everybody took their losses together, and they moved on. But in Massachusetts, the, the elites in Boston said, we're going to get dollar for dollar, we're going to pay off these war bonds, and we're going to tax the people to do it. And the injustice of that was too much to suffer. Governor Bowdoin was a rich landlord and merchant, and he had a personal stake in the crisis. He personally held war bonds worth more than 3,200 pounds. Which is, people were buying farms for 70 pounds, so 3,200 pounds is a huge windfall. Out in Western Mass, Daniel Shays was in danger of losing his farm, along with many of his neighbors. He had those big tax payments due, and it didn't help that he'd never been paid for his years in the Continental Army. A lot of other soldiers were paid in paper currency that had lost most of its value. But the state was demanding that the people pay their taxes in full, in gold and silver coin, which a lot of farmers just didn't have and couldn't get. So they faced having to sell their land or having courts take it from them. Judges were also throwing men in jail for failing to pay. So now, if you're a farmer who's at risk of losing his land after fighting for eight years and it's being taken away from you because you don't have the right kind of currency, and you're angry about it, you're a lazy moocher who deserves to lose it. You should be taught the value of hard work. Elites were saying things like that about the protesting farmers. Henry Knox, in his letter to George Washington that October, said the real cause of the unrest in Massachusetts was not high taxes, as it appeared to be. No, he said. The problem was the farmers, their greed and envy. They feel at once their own poverty, compared with the opulent, and their own force, and they are determined to make use of the latter in order to remedy the former. You can see how a class of people would start to look at each other and say, you guys, this isn't, this isn't fair. How did they set this up? The farmers tried peaceful ways of voicing their distress, for months, groups of farmers in western Massachusetts sent petitions to the state capitol appealing for lower taxes or leniency, but they got no response. So on August 29, 1786, hundreds of farmers, including Daniel Shays, went to the Hampshire County Court in Northampton, which was scheduled to deal with tax debtors that day. Dan Bullen. They surrounded the court. They wouldn't let the judges in. Judges huddled in the taverns. They tried to negotiate for terms under which they could open the court. There was an impasse. The, the court did not open that day. The Shazites, as they would come to be called, then did similar actions in other counties, shutting down all the debtor courts west of Boston over the next few weeks. In Boston, the government led by James Bowden took a hard line. And the way that they tried to solve it was by the middle of, end of October, they're circulating a riot law, a riot act, that will arrest, if you get, so if you gather in a group of armed men and you don't disperse within an hour after being told, you are liable to being arrested, transported to Boston, whipped 39 stripes every three months during your incarceration, you forfeit your land and property to the state, and sheriffs are indemnified against liability if they kill or injure protesters. And that sounds a lot like British law again. We're just, you're not proud people living on your own land. You are subjects, and you will be subject to our authority. Through the fall of 1786, things got more and more tense. Farmers, led by Shays and a few other men, kept showing up in force, not allowing the debtor courts to open. Then the first bloodshed. In November, the state government sent men on horseback to arrest some leaders of the resistance, including a man named Job Shattuck. He was the largest landowner in Groton, Massachusetts, and the leader of several protests. When they caught up with Shattuck and he resisted arrest, one of the government's men slashed his leg with a sword, crippling him. Still, as Dan Bullen says, no actual violence 
came from the Shazites. You can turn this into whatever you want and spin it up and, oh, the people rose up in arms. I don't find that that's an accurate description of what I see in the accounts. They didn't rise up in arms. They made proud displays of opposition to their government, disobedience. Until January 1787. To tell this climactic part of the story, Dan Bullen and I go to Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah, right behind us is the, um, the Springfield Armory. And, uh, the Armory is a red brick building with a clock tower in the center. It's now a museum and historic site, part of a community college campus. Men are at work out on the big lawn where we're standing. Lawn mowers and leaf blowers. During and after the Revolutionary War, this was a major weapons arsenal for the U.S. Army. It was here that things turned lethal. Governor Bowdoin in Boston had had enough of the farmers' insurrection in the West. He raised money from Boston merchants to create a private army of more than 4,000 men. On January 19th, Bowdoin sent the mercenaries out from Boston, marching west through the snow, to subdue the Shazites once and for all. Daniel Shays and the other resistance leaders decided to seize the arsenal before the governor's army could get to it. On January 25th, about 1,200 farmers marched up to the Springfield arsenal. So Shays arrives from the east uh, toward the arsenal grounds in reports say knee-deep snow late in the day. Imagine a cold January day that these guys are all on foot. Um, but they showed up in lines eight abreast, their weapons at their shoulders. The governor's army hadn't arrived yet, but the arsenal was protected by the Springfield militia, commanded by William Shepard. Bullen says all the evidence suggests the Shazites did not want or expect a violent confrontation. They hoped a show of resolve might lead to one more chance for negotiation. But then... They received cannon fire. The first shots went over their heads as a warning shot. Those shots had the effect of making them bunch up and go faster. And when they didn't stop at about 100 yards out, the general in charge of the grounds, uh, William Shepard, who is a Revolutionary War general from Westfield, ordered his men to lower the cannons to waistband height. And they fired grape shot, steel balls bigger than thumb knuckles, ripped through the first three lines. The grape shot mowed down the first three rows of men killing four and wounding 20. The Shazites did not return fire. They turned around immediately to cries of murder, murder, um, and they retreated back to Ludlow. They did not make another attempt to take anything over after that. The protest movement was over. But you could say the Shazites won. In the next election, just a few months after the shooting at the Arsenal, Massachusetts voters threw out Governor Bowdoin and elected his predecessor, John Hancock. Yes, that John Hancock, famous for his big signature on the Declaration of Independence. Hancock was a rich guy like Bowdoin, but his politics were very different. He dramatically lowered taxes on the people and pardoned several Shazites who'd been sentenced to hang, though he didn't yet pardon Shays himself. Shays fled to Vermont, which was then beyond the borders of the United States. He was pardoned the following year, and he lived as a struggling farmer in western New York State until his death in 1825. Dan Bullen says most Americans who've heard the story at all have a vague understanding. Some farmers launched an insurrection for some reason, demonstrating the need for a stronger federal government that helped lead to the writing of our cherished Constitution. Dan says these accounts often gloss over the class conflict at the heart of the farmers' movement. In 1787, after the dust settled out here, it, it quickly became unfashionable to tell stories about people who had risen against the government. And I'm putting up the scare quotes about that, um, because really they were staging a defensive anti-austerity campaign, in my understanding. But we can't tell that story, because then it would sound like rich Americans were oppressing poor Americans, and we would have to try to explain how that happened. But we pretend to be a classless society, and we don't want to hear that story, so we just tell the story about drunken rabble-rousers who stirred up popular resentment. They wanted stuff that wasn't theirs. 
Chenjirai, let's, can we just bring you in here for a minute? I, I really, I want to ask you, um, did you learn about Shay's Rebellion in school? What do you remember, if anything? <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't remember learning about it in school. And honestly, I got to tell you, I don't either. Yeah, I mean, but I was, to be fair, I was not a good student and I wasn't, I didn't really think history was really important. So the teacher might have been trying to show me and I wasn't getting it. But I, my takeaway certainly wasn't anything to do with like those kind of class struggles that you see in Shay's Rebellion. I felt like, I just felt like, okay, on one hand you have black people who are enslaved and we just aren't really, in a way we're almost like not a part of history, right? We, mm-hmm. Certainly as agents. And then all the white people were sort of together. They weren't classes. They were just together on the same side, like the Avengers against the evil British. Yeah. Well, let's introduce you. Chenjirai Kumanika, journalism and communications professor at Rutgers University, podcaster, activist, artist, and our regular collaborating conversationalist in this series. Um, Yes, and I think that's really one thing to take away from the story so far, right, is that even white U.S. society has always been deeply stratified and that there have always been upheavals, labor strife, you know, class divisions going back to the colonial era. Remember in uh, in Seeing White, we talked about Bacon's Rebellion, which was way back in the 1670s. And there were many, many incidents like that um, throughout U.S. history and colonial history. And what I think Shay's Rebellion really starts to make clear is something that's still missing from the way we talk about class today, which was that poor folks, poor farmers weren't poor for no reason. The reason, you know, they were poor basically because of rich people. Like rich folks are exploiting them through taxes and unfair laws and ultimately violence. So there's a way we think about class back then and now where we talk about rich and poor folks, but we don't talk about the relationships of the riches to the poverty. Yeah, that they actually are related and part of the same system. But okay, I think, you know, the next question then is going to be, what does all this have to do with the U.S. Constitution and what that document tells us about American democracy? Well, I'm offended that you would even ask that because (laughs) clearly the Constitution is about, you know, freedom. Yes. You know, those kinds of things, right? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think that's in a way that's how people respond. Right. And it's kind of like we shouldn't be controversial to talk about this because now in the in the age of political lobbying, it's pretty clear that wealthy people and corporations are always working to shape the law to their advantage. Right. It's not a conspiracy. I mean, they're lobbying for less regulation, lower taxes, real estate developers lobby for zoning laws and things like that. And of course, they say it benefits everyone. And regardless of who you think it benefits, Though I think it's what's clear is the political process is entangled with economics. But then when we talk about the Constitution way back then, it's like somehow it floats above all of that. That the Constitution just kind of gave us a bunch of freedoms. Right. And it didn't have anything to say about economics. or right. Except that we're free to buy and sell stuff, right? Exactly. I think that's kind of what we think. Yeah, and uh, but when you zoom in a little closer, you get a different picture. And it just so happens that's what we're going to do next. And really the question is, what kind of document was the Constitution? Really, what was it designed to do when that group of men got together in the summer of 1787 to write it? Driving this winding road through trees, rolling hills, just beautiful countryside here in kind of north central Virginia. Horse farms. I'm off to see the estate of another founding father. This one's about 70 miles from Washington's Mount Vernon, and by the way, only about 30 miles from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Just turned on to Constitution Highway, as it's named. You know, we, Madison suffers a little bit from being a little bit more of a behind-the-scenes guy. And I think that historically that's been his vibe, and that's kind of been... Price Thomas, Director of Marketing and Communications at Montpelier. It's the one-time home of James and Dolly Madison and their 100 or so enslaved workers at any given time. 
Madison was rich, but not as rich as Washington, and he was almost two decades younger. He would become the fourth president. He stood about five foot three, and in the American popular imagination, he doesn't seem to stand as tall as some other founders. You know, it's kind of a running joke, but we're like, you know, we got Jefferson and, and Washington and, you know, Madison kind of behind the scenes, and then Hamilton gets a musical. So, you know, he's, some people call him, you know, I think they call him the forgotten founder for that reason, is that his name's not really ever out there. And yet, for better or worse, no one person, no one, did more to shape the United States we live in today than James Madison. Just 35 years old in 1786, he leads the call for the Constitutional Convention, the one Henry Knox is bugging George Washington to attend. Then Madison spends the winter and spring studying up and writing what becomes known as the Virginia Plan, a template for the discussions in Philadelphia. He does a bunch of reading and he's fluent in seven languages and, and is, you know, pouring over all things historical governments. And so that goes into the Virginia Plan, which becomes the topic of conversation at the convention. And so that's how he earns that moniker, Father of the Constitution. It's not that he got everything that he wanted. It's not that he wrote the entire thing. It's that his foundational ideas in the Virginia Plan became kind of the nucleus of that, that other guys built on and, you know, that they talked about. And that eventually becomes the, uh, becomes the Constitution. It's also thanks to Madison that we know much at all about what happened during those three and a half months in Philadelphia. Fifty-five white men, most of them rich, almost half of them slaveholders, attended the convention at the Pennsylvania State House. They represented each of the states in small delegations. Even though it was hot and humid, they kept the windows closed and covered so no one could peer in. The men made a vow of secrecy and any notes they took were collected at the door, except Madison's, and some less extensive notes by a couple other delegates which did survive. He's one of the very few delegates to actually attend every session of the convention. A lot of them were coming and going. Michael Dickens leading a constitution tour at Montpelier. He talks about Madison's role as the chronicler of the convention. Alone in his room every night, writing out highlights from the day, paraphrasing key debates and speeches. At one point he said he was staying up to midnight to transcribe what everybody was saying. He said the effort almost killed him. He stored those minutes in this house for over 50 years. So nobody ever saw these until, except Dolly, uh, until Madison's death, at which point they were uh, uh, transferred to the Library of Congress where they reside today. Resolution 4, First Clause that the members of the national legislature ought to be elected by the people of the several states being taken up. On May 31, 1787, the delegates debated this fundamental idea of the new republic. Would members of the House of Representatives be directly elected by the people? The state legislatures under the Articles of Confederation were radically democratic for the 18th century. Many states had lowered their property requirements so up to 80% of white male voters could cast ballots. By comparison, Britain's parliamentary system allowed just a small fraction of landowning men to vote. Many American states held legislative elections annually. These governments were more accountable to the people than any in the world at the time. Of course, full citizens of the new nation did not include the vast majority of the people, women, Native Americans, or enslaved black people. Still, some delegates at the convention looked at this picture and saw too much democracy. The people, immediately, should have as little to do as may be about the government. They lack information and are constantly liable to be misled. That's Roger Sherman, a delegate from Connecticut, and here's Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, the site of Shays' Rebellion. The evils we experience flow from the excess of democracy. Madison quotes Gary as saying he's become more suspicious of Republican government. He's learned from experience, quote, the danger of the leveling spirit. Leveling meant efforts toward economic equality. Men, including Madison and George Mason, gave speeches in favor of popular election of the House, and the delegates approved that measure. But the deep worry about giving ordinary citizens too much power was a constant theme at the convention. 
It led to many structural checks on people power in the document. Especially the powerful president and his veto, and the Senate, which many of the delegates explicitly described as a house of elites that would temper the less disciplined people's house. Often mixed in with the concern about too much democracy were frank remarks about divisions of wealth and class. The elite framers were thoroughly class conscious. All communities divide themselves into the few and the many. The first are the rich and well-born, the other, the mass of the people. That's Alexander Hamilton, quoted in the convention notes of another delegate. Here Hamilton is arguing that members of the United States Senate should be appointed for life. The people are turbulent and changing. They seldom judge or determine right. Give therefore to the first class a distinct permanent share in the government. Nothing but a permanent body can check the imprudence of democracy. Hamilton also thought the president should be appointed for life. He did not want a radical democratic break from the British system. Not at all. In fact, Madison's summary of one Hamilton speech includes this passage. In his private opinion, he had no scruple in declaring that the British government was the best in the world, and that he doubted much whether anything short of it would do in America. Hamilton lost those arguments. The resulting Constitution was somewhat more democratic than he wanted. But the delegates with the most democratic instincts didn't get their way either. James Wilson of Pennsylvania said the people should elect their senators directly, instead of the convention's more elitist choice to have state legislatures choose members of the Senate. That wouldn't change until the 17th Amendment in 1913. Madison argued for proportional representation in the Senate, as in the House. If he'd got his way, it could have meant that today California would have 60-some U.S. senators to one for Wyoming. Today's big-D Democrats would love that, so would a lot of people who cherish the principle of one person, one vote. Instead, of course, the Constitution gave the states equal representation, two senators per state. That was a key compromise demanded by the small states, who likely would have bolted the convention if the big states hadn't buckled. Even though they were published 180 years ago, Madison's notes on the Constitution are revelatory. At least they were for me. One concept that jumped out at me several times, when delegates said things like this. An accurate view of the matter would prove that property is the main object of society. That's Governor Morris of Pennsylvania. Pierce Butler and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, both of South Carolina, also talk about a government instituted for the protection of property. At one point, James Wilson disagrees, saying the most noble object of government is the improvement of the human mind. But when you read the conversation among these property-rich men, you can't miss that they're out to protect private property and the people who have it in the legal framework they're building for the new nation. Which brings us back to the theme of class division those who own lots of things and those who don't. And in particular, the division between people who owe money and those who are owed, debtors and creditors. The men who wrote the Constitution, if you look at their number one concern, it was to stop the state legislatures from defrauding creditors. Historian Woody Holton again. To explain what he means, Woody is taking us back to where we started this episode, talking about the Revolutionary War bonds that were held by rich creditors. Remember, the efforts to pay off those bonds were leading to backbreaking state taxes and austerity and people's protests like Shays' Rebellion. The Constitution would solve that problem by giving the national government new power to tax. A federal tax on imports paid off the war bonds in full, making those creditors happy including some who were delegates to the Constitutional Convention. One of Woody Holton's many writings is an article called The Capitalist Constitution. He says the framers, almost all financial elites, were eager to make the United States safe for business, an attractive haven for capital. 
for example, the father of the Constitution himself. James Madison. In 1787, when he wrote the Constitution, he was 36 years old and he was still living with his parents. Now, not a bad basement to live in if you've ever seen Montpelier, but he wanted to get going on his own. He's, 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 you know, he's 36 years old. So by that time, he had set up a land speculation firm with his friend and future successor in the White House, uh, James Monroe, and they wanted to buy a ton of Western land and then sell it at a huge profit and make themselves wealthy the way Washington had done. Trouble was, with all that economic upheaval of the 1780s, no one would lend money to the two Virginians for their land speculation company. The Constitution changed that. So yes, it made creditors happy, but at the same time it pleased people like Madison who wanted to take on debt by finding investors. Because if Madison can borrow money in Europe and set up his his enterprise, he can get wealthy, but in fairness to him, he's not just thinking about himself. That's going to move the whole economy along. He'll hire other people, and he'll spend a lot of money, and that that will bolster and improve the entire economy. So the Constitution is a capitalist document in that it's meant to attract capital to the American economy. The Constitution did that not only by settling the war debt. Other parts of the document gave the federal government power to regulate commerce across state and international lines, and allowed for taxes on imports, but not on exports. That was a huge gift to slaveholders, who made their money by exporting things like tobacco and cotton. Another gift to the owners of human property was the Fugitive Slave Clause, complete with its euphemistic language to avoid using the S-word in the Constitution. No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, Shall. The clause required that enslaved people who ran away be returned to their owners no matter where in the nation they were caught. The Constitution also gave the new national government power to put down mass protests like Shays Rebellion or any future slave revolt, which was something slaveholders worried about a lot. Finally, consider all those layers of veto power that the framers built in to check the democratically elected House of Representatives. The House is often called the People's House because House districts are proportional. Whether you lived in Philadelphia or rural Georgia, you'd have a congressman representing your community and its interests, about 35,000 people per district in those early days. And House members had to face the voters every two years. But a law passed in the House has to get through the Senate, the President, and the courts. An elaborate obstacle course always there to knock down any troublesome ideas bubbling up from below. And that was the whole point, was to create a government that was much less accountable to the people. To make it responsible by making it less responsive. And many of the framers said it explicitly. Under the Articles of Confederation, the states were too democratic, they thought. They were going to fix that. The authors of the Constitution believed that in order to make America safe for investment, they had to make America less democratic. They really believed that there's a, a, a continuum or spectrum between if you move the needle towards more democracy, you're going to get less investment capital. And if you move it towards, uh, towards less democracy, you're going to get more uh, investment capital. Hey, Chenjirai. Hey, man. You know, it's not news to me that the United States has always had deep flaws and injustices. But, you know, I will say that I grew up learning that the U.S. Constitution was not part of those problems mainly. Yes, it allowed slavery in these days, you know, we talk about the Electoral College and some problems with it, but the message overwhelmingly that I've gotten all my life about the Constitution was that it was this huge step toward democracy, toward democracy, not only for this country, but in world history. Yeah, I just feel like in my history classes, we rushed through everything that happened before. The Constitution was the real meaningful beginning, and it was like flawed, but everything got better from there. Yeah, but that's, it was not the beginning. The, the beginning was the Articles of Confederation. That was the first governing structure 
for the United States of America. But it turns out that the Articles of Confederation were too democratic for a lot of powerful people at the time, including most of the men who got together to write the Constitution. Right? So in fact, the Constitution was more about reigning in democracy than it was about expanding or codifying it. And you know, I think for a lot of people who think like me, what's interesting is I would have been like, who cares? Because I would have been like, uh, the point is, they were all slaveholders. To be, there was this genocide. Why does why do these little distinctions about political history matter? But what I realize is, when you say it was all bad in the beginning, but then it got better, you become kind of vulnerable to this idea of history, where it just it's an ongoing improvement, and it just sort of naturally improves. And you know, as opposed to really seeing more clearly the, the designs, right, and the economic designs that were involved. Right. So to say that that the Constitution reigned in democracy, that can sound like a wild, radical statement. It probably does to some people. But actually, my understanding is that, that what I just said is not really a matter of debate among professional historians. They might disagree, or they do disagree, about whether that was a good or bad thing. Right? So more mainstream historians would say that the Constitution was necessary and a good step for the same reason that most of the framers thought it was, right? that it made America safe for investment, a good place to do business. Somebody like Woody Holton would say that wasn't the only way to go, to kind of rein in democracy in order to make, make the capitalism work better, that it's quite possible the U.S. could have stayed more democratic and still thrived and done fine economically, but we just didn't give that option a chance. Yeah, so, I mean... So you see that moving into the Constitutional Convention, right? And it's complex. I don't want to oversimplify it. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. Some are some things that are going to result in more democracy and some in less. But what ultimately emerges is a minority of already powerful people with tremendous veto power over the whole process, right? Now, I always heard about those debates about protecting minority power in the abstract, like it might be marginalized people they're protecting, right? But who actually is the minority whose interest get encoded into the document at the convention? And it's everybody has to compromise with slaveholders. Right. The slaveholding states. Yeah. So look again at this Fugitive Slave Act, which we talked about. We would normally look at that as a problem of racism. And it is, right? This law that says that no matter where an enslaved person runs away to, including places that don't allow slavery, they're going to be caught and hauled back to where they to where they came from, right? So that's that's a racist law, but it's also a matter of certain people trying to protect their wealth, their property, right? Their human property. And going back to your point about minority rule, the Fugitive Slave Act was a pure power move on the part of Southern slaveholders who, they are a small minority of the overall population of the country, and actually a minority of people even at the Constitutional Convention, but they used their leverage to say, you're going to give us stuff like this, or we're just going to walk, and you're not going to have a country. Yeah. I mean, that's just one really important example of how the Constitution encoded forms of minority rule that claim they're going to protect vulnerable people but fail to protect the most vulnerable. And there's lots of other examples. Yeah, and, and it's not just slaveholders either. In Madison's notes, you can find these clear statements by people at the at the convention that people like us, those of us in the room, wealthy elites, whether slaveholders or not, we are a minority. And the majority are regular people out there who don't have much. And even just talking about white people, right? Uh, working class people. And we need to protect ourselves from them. If, they, if we're going to have just a regular majority rule system, we could be in trouble. It might not work out for us and our property, right? So they built in structures to ensure their protection. A great example is the U.S. Senate, which was designed to be made up of elite men who would not even be elected by the people originally. The Constitution had them elected by state legislatures. And sure enough, the Senate became this place where legislation goes to die. I mean, one example of that is there were actually eight anti-slavery measures passed by the House before the Civil War, between 1800 and 1860, and all of them got killed in the Senate. But, you know, I'm thinking about something else, right? I mean, we're talking about the U.S. Constitution 
And we really haven't said much about the Bill of Rights. And I think a lot of people, when they think about the greatness of the Constitution, it's the Bill of Rights. That's really what, yeah, that's what we're often we're talking about. Freedom of speech. This yeah. is important stuff. No doubt, man. You know, Bill of Rights is great, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's freedom of religion, sort of, right? <laughs> freedom of protest, kind of, right? But it is, it is really important. But think about it. The Bill of Rights doesn't solve these deeper problems with the Constitution and minority veto that we're talking about here. Right. I mean, it takes almost a century in a massively bloody civil war after the Bill of Rights before black people become citizens. And it also takes 130 years for women, white women, to get the right to vote despite the Bill of Rights. So, you know, we brag about the Bill of Rights and the freedom of speech and the right to protest. But what's actually changing laws and transforming the country is people going to jail, breaking the law and actually also people dying and shedding blood. Chandrai Kumanika. A correction, you sharp-eared history buffs will have noticed that I misspoke in talking with Chandrai when I referred to the Fugitive Slave Act. That was a law passed in 1850. I meant to say, and was talking about, the Fugitive Slave Clause, which was part of the Constitution. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks, as always, to my esteemed friend, Chenjerai Kumanyika. Our editor for season four was Loretta Williams. That season's theme song, The Underside of Power, by Algiers. Other music by John Eric Cotta, Eric Naveau, and Goodnight Lucas. Music consulting and production help by Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Voiceovers in this episode by Lawrence Baldine, Scott Hewler, Dan Partridge, and Bill Bamberger. Scene on Radio comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. <laughs> <laughs>